Thank you, Pastor Chris. If you have a Bible, please open it and turn to Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one in the pew near you. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one. We'd be glad for you to have that to read God's Word. I want to welcome Pastor Wigan. As I already mentioned, uh, Pastor's back with us today. We're thankful that he's here. Blessings to you and, and Leah in uh, their time uh, now in, in Ohio. We're thankful they came back north probably to try to, to get some cooler weather, but uh, didn't, didn't, didn't work out for him this time. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we are in the book of Acts this morning. So Acts chapter 6, we've been in the book of Acts uh, for the past few weeks and uh, will continue to be for a while yet. But um, we have seen in the book of Acts that the, the church is, is beginning. Right? This is the, the origins of what we call the church. It's beginnings. Uh, from square one, the, the ground up of this new community, we've seen the good, bad. Uh, we have seen Satan's tactics of persecution against the church from outside the church. We have also seen his tactic of corruption from within the church. That was in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And now here in chapter 6, we see another tactic of Satan's is distraction. Distraction as the apostles are faced with the decision concerning necessary tasks versus their divine calling. You heard it read already, but in verse 1, we find that the church is growing. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, right? The gospel is advancing. If we could call the, the, the book of Acts something, it's the, the gospel advance, right? We're seeing the gospel continue to move as Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Uh, we see that advance happening. That's actually how the book is broken up. If you were to kind of outline the whole book, you can see that progression actually happening throughout the book. And so here, uh, as the church ha has grown, has, it, it has experienced difficulties already, we're seeing that, that there is growth. And with growth comes challenges. And with challenges and with growth comes changes, difficulty, and even pain amidst the growth, but growth also produces blessing. Now, gospel growth that we're going to see here in these verses is good, and it ought to be celebrated. So as we read these, these verses, we're, we're seeing something very, very good about the local church. God loves gospel growth, and the growth of this church uh, is, is increasing. We find that in verse 7, it's, it's multiplying or it's expanding. These are good, good words. It's certainly not all about numbers. Right? Sometimes people get a little leery about that with churches, that they just want to count numbers, and that's all they care about is the statistics. But as one writer has said, we count people because people count. So it does matter. We're not in a contest against another church, but we are wanting to see growth. We're wanting to see advance. We're wanting to see more people come to know Jesus. We want to see more disciples growing in Jesus. Right? There's evidence of that. As our, our group grows and changes, that is a good, good thing. But as we said, with growth comes inevitable problems, inevitable pains. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we see some of those pains that, that are going on, some of the issues that are being created. The, the unity of the church is at stake here. We see that there are, there are needs that need to be addressed. There is an overburden of leadership happening. 
There's criticism and how to handle it. There's priorities and which ones are actual priorities. There's the idea of shared ministry that we'll look at. And there's this responsibility of both mission and management, administration and ministry. Administration and mission, I should say. So verse 1 tells us about the problem. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distributions. So the first thing we see is that there's a neglect of widows. Well, a certain group of widows anyways. That's the main issue. When it says daily distribution, it's, it's talking about the provision of needs. That widows were, were, were in need and the church was providing and yet some of them were being neglected. Some of them were being overlooked. Luke tells us about two groups. One's called the Hellenists and one's called the Hebrews. Uh, the Hellenists, some of your Bibles might have a footnote or they might even say, they were Greek-speaking Jews. And it was the Greek-speaking Jews who were being neglected. Well, one writer has said that when even a small group of people try to live together, let alone share resources, sometimes even tiny distinctions in background and culture can loom very large and have serious consequences. And this is what we're seeing here. These two groups, and one is getting neglected. Uh, there's, there's lots maybe that could be said about the distinctions between these two groups, but sufficient for our purposes today, that the Greek-speaking uh, widows uh, were outsiders, both in, in language and in culture. Right? That, that was true culturally. Yet what we come to find out is in Christ, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ. Right? And so that there should not be a distinction. There shouldn't be a distinction in how these, these uh, women are being cared for. Uh, but it's not just neglect. There's an element of, of poor administration that's happening here. As we read the text, there's no indication that this is intent, intentional. There's no indication that they're deliberately uh, overlooking these particular widows. What we come to find out is that there's a growing load of care. As the church grew, as more and more people came to know Jesus, as more and more people were being converted to Christ, there were more and more people that needed care. And that, that load... Um, continued to increase, and some people were not getting the care they needed. It is thought by some that the number of believers at this point in the book of Acts may be something like 20,000 people. So you might, you might understand why some people might be getting overlooked at this point. But there's also another problem we see, that the Hellenists um, were right when they acknowledged uh, that, that there was a neglect, but they were wrong when they complained about the neglect. Right, that there's a right way to handle something, and there's a wrong way to handle something. So these widows were right in acknowledging the need, but they were wrong in complaining about it. So they, they had their what right, but they had their wrong, their how wrong, right? And that, that could be true for us too. We can have the right idea, and we do it in the wrong way, right? And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing women who are complaining about it, which it was a right need, but it was a wrong response. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, right? So it's not the, the, the problem that's the problem. It's the way that it was dealt with is the problem. Caring for widows and the vulnerable has always been important to God, 
You read through the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, and it is clear that God cares about the vulnerable. He cares about the needy. He cares about the refugee. He cares about the alien. He cares about the sojourner. He cares about the widow. Psalm chapter 68, verse 5, says this, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God in his holy habitation. In Luke chapter 7, we see, see Jesus giving attention to the widow by raising the widow's daughter, excuse me, the widow's son from, from, from death. If it's important to God, right, you know where this is going, it should be important to us. Paul calls the church to honor and to care for widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And in James chapter 1, we read this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You, you want to you honor God with how you follow him? Then, then this is part of it. It's caring for the vulnerable. It's caring for those who have have need. The neglect was not okay, and it needed to be addressed. It was right to be addressed. There was a problem in the church, and it needed a solution. In verses 2 through 4, the, the apostles respond. Look at it with me. They give a solution. And the 12 summons the, the number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, we'll, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, the, the problem could have caught traction in the church. Uh, in fact, it, it could have divided the church. Churches have, have divided over over similar, or, or it may, we might even say lesser, problems, right? They could have had people taking sides here. Uh, they could have had people uh, promoting a particular position and, and creating this division within the church. That could have happened. That's happened in churches. But that's not what we see here. We don't see picking sides. We don't see accusations. We see a complaint and then the response to the complaints. The problem, the, the neglect, revealed a need for change. It revealed a need for adjustment. And that's what the apostles did. They learned about the issue, and they didn't just impose an answer. Right? That's not what they did. They listened, and then they, they gave a proposal to make this kind of adjustment. They acted with wisdom, really, here. As you see what they do, this is very wise uh, response to this, this need. It was both effective and it was generous. They were meeting the need and they were being generous as well. And we find that God honors that and he protects this church. So after they called the disciples together, and uh, in our text today, just a side note here, there three times the people are called disciples. You know, after the book of Acts, they're never called disciples again. The, the, the terms for Christians changed after that. They were called believers or brothers. Right? They were reflecting not so much their, their following Jesus as their relationship with one another and what they believed, not who they followed as much. Interesting. Three times, though, they're called disciples here. So after they call them, uh, they, they give their stated priority. So the apostles say, okay, so this is the situation, but we're going we're gonna to get on the table right ahead, right, right at the start, what our priorities are and then what we're proposing to do about it. So they state it in verses 2 and 4. 
that their, their responsibility is to preach and to pray. Their responsibility is the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. And they commit themselves, they devote themselves not to neglect the, the ministry of the word and of prayer. It was non-negotiable for the apostles. They wouldn't do it. We've already seen in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, a priority on the word of God. Our, our church seeks to have a priority on the word of God. That, that's, that is, we, we believe that with all our heart. It's a priority to preach, a priority to hear God's word every Sunday and to live out God's word. In the book of Acts, we see the priority of the word of God. In chapter two, we see Peter preaching a sermon at Pentecost. At the end of chapter two, we see the church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. In chapter three, we see Peter preaching again, preaching repentance. In chapter four, after they've been threatened, we see the apostles still teaching. In chapter five, when they're freed from the prison, the angel tells them to go and to speak these words of this life. They continue to preach. In chapter five, verse 42, the apostles were preaching and teaching in the temple and house to house daily. They, there was an emphasis on preaching. There was an emphasis on the word of God. There seems to be, at times, a, a not so much of an emphasis in some churches on preaching. Listen, preaching matters. The word of God matters. The, the problem of care required uh, administration and it required supervision and it was important, but that supervision would have distracted the apostles from the responsibility of preaching and prayer. It wasn't to say that it somehow was, was an inferior task to care for the widows. That's not what they were saying at all. It was, they were just saying this, it's not our task. It's a task that, that is needed. It's not our tasks. See, the danger for the apostles was there a preoccupation with administration while neglecting what God had called them to actually do. And this is a real temptation for ministers of the word, even today. It's a real temptation to be so caught up in, in running things, in managing things, in administrating things, that we neglect the very thing that God has called us to do. That is preaching and prayer, which are terribly closely connected. This is no small matter. And the reason it's not a small matter is because that's how the church grows. That's how the church is built. It's built by the word of God. The church is not built by programs. It's not built by gimmicks. It's not built by PR or good management. That is not how it works. You can grow a crowd that way. You can get people to an event that way, but that's not the same thing as building a church. The reason why this church has for decades been committed to the solid and faithful teaching of the Bible is we believe that is how the church is built. And Acts chapter 6 is telling us the same thing. The apostles believed that and they were committed to that. They were so committed to that that they said there is a need and we're not the ones to meet it. So we are going to propose a solution. We're committed to preaching and we're committed to prayer. Prayer is a quiet, difficult, powerful, and necessary work that's directly connected to the ministry of the word. If there's not prayer involved in, in what we're doing today, it's an exercise in vanity, right? It, it, we, are, we are beating at the air. This is, this is a worthless time for all of us. Right? Prayer is an absolute necessary part of what, what happens here. For the apostles, they understood that preaching and prayer take time, they take effort, and they were responsibilities that they held closely. They were responsible for the health and the growth of the church. John Stott says this, God calls his people to ministry. 
He calls different people to different ministries. And those called to prayer and the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from these priorities. For the apostles, if they would have neglected, just imagine, say, man, these needs are so great. We're going to take a break from preaching. We're going we're to work on these, these needs. If they would have neglected the word of God, it would have left the church open, open to Satan's further attack, open to false teaching. So what the apostles understood is they were 12 guys chosen by God, but they couldn't do everything. There were needs that they could not fulfill. They needed help. So the apostles propose um, an answer, a solution. And this solution demonstrates not that they don't care about the, the widows, that they do care about the widows. That they're so, so care, caring about the widows that they're going to commit themselves to their responsibility and give this responsibility to faithful men. And in verses 3 through 4, we see their, the proposal. They're proposing to delegate this responsibility to someone else. Not just anyone else either. This was a responsibility given to particular gifted men. Now, if you're in leadership at all, you've probably heard about delegation. And delegation is way easier to talk about than actually do, right? Uh, most of us have ha had that experience of things we probably should give away to someone else, but it's hard to do that. Well, the apostles don't just talk about it here. They see the problem, they propose the issue or propose the solution, and they do it. This might remind you of Another story in the book of Exodus chapter 16 with a guy named Moses. Remember this story? After they come through the Red Sea, um, Moses is, is the judge and jury of, of all the disputes between the Israelites. Remember this? Remember, there, there's thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. And he is the, the lone arbiter of, of justice, if you can imagine that. Day and night, he is, he is, he is hearing these complaints. His, his father-in-law comes. Jethro, and he says, watches what happens, a day in the life of Moses, if you will, and he comes to the conclusion that Moses should not be doing what he's doing. This, this, this isn't working. This is not going to work. This isn't going to, you can't, this isn't sustainable. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. And he makes him a proposal to delegate responsibility to committed, faithful people that they can take care of some of these tasks while you take care of other tasks. Well, Moses wisely receives the counsel. And he implements the ideas. And we find that things were better. Right? Things were better for Moses. They were better for the people. People were more effectively being served. And leaders were being, being more active. But this idea of handing over ministry, this idea of, of shared ministry, um, what was an act that, that took some willingness to give something away in order that the whole might be better. They gave it to Good men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, some people think that this, this list that we find in just a couple verses might be the original deacons, if you will. Uh, we have deacons at our church. We have six deacons that serve at our church. This is a, li a list uh, of seven. Uh, some people believe that because they, they're, they're serving. And that's actually what the word deacon means, the literal word. The, the word that's used in, in the original language means to, to serve or to minister. That's what the word means. However, it's, it's a pretty general word, and they're never officially called deacons here as, a, as in, a, in a position. But nevertheless, that's what they're doing. They're deaconing, if you will, if we put that into a verb. Like, that's what they're doing uh, here in chapter 6. Um, so we don't know if they, they were certainly 
we certainly don't know that um, for certain, but we do know that that's what they were doing. That in this case, they were serving tables or they were caring for the, the needy. And that is the job. Whether they were official or not, they were helping the church function. That is what a deacon does. That's what a minister does. Whether it's in a formal deacon position or if it's a minister, a servant, somebody serving in the church, that's the goal. So the principle is this. So you might think, what does deacons have to do with me? I'm not a deacon, right? There's six of you sitting there, right? That say, I'm a deacon. Everybody else is saying, I'm not a deacon, right? So, so what does this have to do with you? But there's an important principle here. And it doesn't just apply to people who... Um, uh, are in the, uh, the office of deacon. You see, the work of the 12 is called the ministry of the word. And the work of the seven is called serving tables. The word to serve and the word ministry are the same word. What's the point? The point is they're both ministry. One's not inferior to the other. The apostles weren't giving over an inferior job to, to the seven. They were giving over a different job to the seven. They were giving over an equally important job in the sense that those women needed care, but they were called to a different ministry. You're called to use your gifts too. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. Same word, serve. Same Greek word as we saw in Acts 6. Same Greek word for the office of deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Or one more, Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Same word. I think you might be getting the point here, right? That the ministry that these men took under was a ministry of service. And whether that was serving tables or serving as a Sunday school teacher or serving as a van driver or whatever, whatever blank you want to fill in, that's, that's the same thing. It's a ministry to others, to God. So if God calls all people to ministry, but he calls different people to different ministries, the question then becomes this, is what is your ministry? That's the principle here. That don't get lost in the details of a, of a deacon and an apostle. See, see, see the point. And the point is that there was leadership given to disperse the load and to say there's other ministries here that the apostles can't do. Who can do those things? And they found the right people to do that. Now, it might not be a formal position. You might never be a Sunday school teacher here. You might never be uh, an, a, a youth worker or, a, or, or whatever else official. And we don't have a, an official visiting program here. But maybe like these guys who cared for the widows, maybe you care for the widows. And there's people who do that. They're not official. There's no committee for that. There's just people who are loving other people and caring for them. You can do that. When we talk about ministry, by the way, we're not talking about this hour. You know that, right? When we talk about being involved in ministry, we don't mean just the church ministries. When we say be involved in ministry, we mean be involved in ministry in your neighborhood, at your work, at the store, and yes, here. All of those things are ministry. This is not exclusive to, to a few hours of the week. That's not what we're doing. We're, we're called to, to serve all the time, wherever you're at. So what is your gifting and how are you serving? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us this, that the body, the church is a body, and it works when everybody does their job. Not so much when you or I do someone else's job, but when we all do our job. That's the point. The point isn't for, for me to do your job or you to do my job. It's for each of us to figure out where do we fit in this body and then to do that. 
If you think about a body, the, the parts, not everybody's doing the same thing. Not every body part's doing the same thing. Obviously, your body wouldn't work that way. So you don't have to do what the guy sitting beside you is doing. You don't have to do what I'm doing. That's not the point. The point is that we all should be doing something. One of the dangers when we emphasize teaching a lot is that we get into this route of hearing a lot of things and never applying anything. Sometimes we, we're overeducated for our obedience. Listen, if, if all you hear today is that God's calling you to be active in service, hear that today. Find out what it is and do it. You might say, well, I'm not sure what that is. Well, the best way to figure out what your gift is is to start doing something. You might say, what if I start doing that and I don't like it or I'm not good at it? Then try something else. Well, what if I start doing that and I don't like that or I'm not very good at it? Then start doing something else. It's easier to move if you're moving, right? It's easier to change if you're moving. So the, the question is, what, what is your ministry? How are you serving? We get back to Acts here. As with any changes, uh, any uh, proposed adjustments in, in leadership, there could be criticism, right? There, there could be a fallout to all of this. There could be resistance among the church people. Right? Some people don't like change. I'm not, I'm not, I know nobody here feels that way, but other other churches sometimes have that, right? They have people who are set in their ways and they don't want things to change. They want it to be static. So maybe some of them were saying, well, we want the apostles to do all the visiting. We, we don't want Bob and Larry. Like, we want the apostle, right? And so when Peter doesn't show up, they say, well, where, where's Peter? I'm not good enough for Peter, right? So there could have been some criticism that they handled, and yet that's not what we see happen. That's not what we see happen in this church, we see a, propose, uh, a proposal of adjustment uh, given based on the need of the church, based on the growth that's happening, not, not on the fear of offending someone, not on uh, don't want to break with tradition. They saw a need and they made an adjustment. And they did it, they did it out of love. You, you know, some changes in the church are actually done out of love. Right? L love for, for you, love for people who have, haven't met Jesus yet. So sometimes when things change, it's certainly not to make anyone mad. It's meant to, to help us do what we're doing. That's the goal. That was the goal here. There was a change that needed to be made, and they made the change. And they did it out of love for these widows and how to be more effective as a church. Verses 5 through 7 record the outcome of those changes. So we get this great peak, Right? Sometimes when we make a change, we're not sure how that's going to go. We kind of hope for the best when we make a change. I hope this is going to work. But here we get to see how this actually comes out. What is the outcome of this? Well, look at the first part there in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Can you imagine that? The leadership proposes a change and the whole gathering is pleased. We have a business meeting next week, man. Read this verse, right? The whole gathering is going to be pleased. This is going to be great, right? No, really, though, you, you don't see disgruntlement. You don't see people arguing about the details. Well, how are they going to do that? Or what? No, they're pleased with the idea. Because why? Because they're unified around something. They're unified around the mission of what they're meant to be doing, uh, of caring for one another, of honoring Christ with their church. This problem did not split the, this church. We actually find that it unifies the church. Can you imagine? A problem comes into a church, and it, it, it's not a source of, of division. It's actually a source of, of unity. Because it's an opportunity 
for us to practice love for each other. It's an opportunity for us to, to trust God, to, to hold us together. And we're going to have those opportunities. <laughs> We've had those opportunities. We're going to continue to have those opportunities. Because guess what? Once one, one problem is dealt with, guess what comes next? Another problem, right? I've only been at this a year. I already know that. Like, it's going to happen, right? One problem averted, next one's coming. Right? It, that's the way life is. You know it in your own life. And so what's the point? The point is, is that, yes, we propose good solutions. Yes, we are prayerful in those solutions. But we're committed to the unity of our church. This young church displayed what could be called spirit-filled unity. They weren't after their own agenda here. They weren't after their own preference. They were willing to lay it down and say, for the good of everybody, this makes sense. Right? And they trusted God. They trusted the apostles. And they believed the best about each other. They did, demonstrated love and grace in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as Ephesians 4, verse 3 says. But verse 5 keeps going, and we find that this proposal was put into action. And they chose, and then it gives us the list of the names, seven guys. They chose them. So the, the apostle said, here's an idea. Uh, let's distribute the load to some men who can carry out this responsibility. And they said, that's a great idea. And then they, they chose the seven. The apostles didn't dictate the seven. The group chose the seven. So the apostles were saying, you choose them. This is your church. You, you choose them. We, we practice congregational government here where the, the congregation makes a lot of decisions. And one of the decisions they make is, is who becomes a deacon and a lot of other positions as well. It, it's, it's, it's our church, and we make those decisions together. And, and we find that these men had to live up to some criteria. They were of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom. One of the men is, is Stephen, who next week we're going to look more about Stephen. Uh, but we find that Stephen, Luke gives us a little extra detail about Stephen, that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. When it says full of faith, it means controlled by, full of. Full of is, is controlled by. And look at that in verse 8. And then we'll talk more about Stephen uh, next week. Uh, some indicate, might think that the indication here is due to the, the names listed, that these men may have been Greek-speaking Jews, meaning that the Greek-speaking Jews were tasked with caring for the Greek-speaking widows. Right? That may or may not be true, uh, but the point is, is that they, they appointed men uh, to care for them. And in verse 6, we find that they are set before the apostles, and they pray for them and lay their hands on them. That, that's a sign of commissioning, of sending, of approving, and off they go. And then verse 7, we see this, that the, the word of the Lord increased, the word of God increased, continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. He, he, here's, the, here's the outcome there's gospel growth. The change works. The Word of God was protected. They were committed to the Word of God. And what happened? It increased. Right? These men realized what their priority was. They did their job, and the Word of God increased. And the seven did their job. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And we also find that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Kind of a little thrown in there at the end. And the priests. <laughs> And the priests, did, chapter 4, verse 1, the priests were not very happy, right? The priests didn't like Jesus. They certainly didn't like the apostles' teaching. They had threatened. They had beaten. And now we're seeing that there's conversion of, of priests. And that, that, that's not a small detail. And what, what did that tell us? Well, at least it tells us this, that no one's beyond God's grace. 
right? The person you think who's opposing the Lord, the person you think, oh, they'd never want anything to do with Jesus. Well, not so. Listen, the only way that you came to believe is because God opened your eyes to see it. So how, how will that unbeliever, how will that person who's opposing Jesus now come? Not by your great arguments. Not, not that you can't give an argument, but that, that's not going to change their heart. The Spirit of God changes their heart. He does it through his word. So be faithful at that. And the product we find here, one of the products, is that there are people, more and more people are coming to know Jesus. What do we find? Satan's, Satan's attempt didn't work. Satan had another tactic, right? Okay, so uh, the first two didn't work, so I'm going to distraction. I'm going to try to mix it up. And it doesn't work again. It fails. The prayer and the preaching are devoted to and the church grows. Here in verse 7 is a summary. Uh, Luke makes these every now and then throughout the book. And we'll look at them as we go through the text. But after, after kind of a significant event, he'll make this, this kind of summary statement of, of the advance. Uh, we see it after, after the appointing of the seven. We see it after Saul is converted. We see it after Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, is, comes to Christ. We see it after Paul's first uh, missionary journey. We see it after his second and third missionary journeys. And then in chapter 28, at the end of the book, we see it when Paul arrives at Rome. The gospel continued to advance just as Jesus said it would. In the coming chapters, after we see the persecution of Stephen, we're going to see how the gospel continues to move. One pastor has said it this way. Impediments to growth caused by growth can become occasions for growth when priorities are protected and ministry is shared. Those things that look like they might prevent growth but are actually caused by growth can be occasions for us to continue to grow. But that's only when our priorities are protected. It's only when we, we know what we're doing and we do what we are called to do. And ministry is shared. Problems in the church are inevitable as we are we're fallen. We're sinners, right? It's going to happen. There's limitations. Even when it's not sin, there's limitations. Things are gonna, not gonna, always going to go the right way. We are in a state of constant adjustment. I know that's uncomfortable for some of us, but that's the truth. We are constantly needing to adjust. You do that in your life. Why would it be any different in our church? So the idea that the church is going to stay the same forever and ever and ever is unrealistic. Things change. As our church grows and as it changes, we change. We make adjustments for the glory of God. It's not changing just to change, although like that's bad. But it's not changing because the world tells us to change. It's changing because we're seeing the needs. And that's what these brothers did here in Acts chapter 6. These changes are opportunities for growth, opportunities for us to, like Jesus, to lay down our rights for others and for the glory of God. And Jesus said this of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. If you're tracking, same, same word, <laughs> serve, right? This is the gospel. This is what Jesus did. Uh, it's the gospel that we believe. It's the gospel that, that we, uh, we preach it's the gospel that, that fuels our commitment to this church, to our faith family, to, to caring for one another, to, the, to its unity, and to our particular appointed ministry. So, you have been called to ministry. Every, every Christian has. So the question for us is, is how are we serving? You, you should write something down. Now, some of you probably don't like to write things down, but that's okay. 
if, if you don't have to do it now, it would be good for you actually to physically write it down. What, what is my ministry? How am I serving? What, what am I doing? If you think that, that God has called you just to show up, you're missing out on what God is calling for you. You are. It's not, it's not, it's not for self-gain here. It's, it's for the glory of God and the betterment of his church. He's calling for you. He's calling for you to be involved and to share the load of ministry for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to be active in ministry? Would you help us to know what our ministries are, what that looks like in our life? What are the things that, that you are calling us to do? And God, would you help us to do those things? God, there's some here today who, who are uh, active. They're, they're serving. They're, they're doing. And God, we're thankful for that. We pray that they'll continue. And yet, Father, there's others who have, who have yet to take the step of, of being active in ministry. God, I pray that they would see the, the call of ministry on their life. They would see the example of, of Jesus serving. And they would be um, motivated by your spirit to serve. We ask for your help in these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.